Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Everything's Been Done podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Klein, and today's episode's brought to you by the Everything's Been Done Gear Shop. The Everything's Been Done Gear Shop. Everything you need to get yourself on the way through life and over the rainbow. From graphic goods to torso covers, the EBD Gear Shop has got you covered. Today we've got a very special guest. He is a cheesemonger, a musician, a route master, a man of many hats, the one and only Ron Lewis. And I should note that there are some technical live stream fails associated with this episode. I apologize deeply. I still have no clue what is causing these. There it is. I don't know. I'm doing my best and I'm going to keep doing it. And maybe one of these days it'll work itself out. All right. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the show. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure. Oh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, hang out, you know, do the thing in the <laughs> place. So, so good. So good. So I guess, I don't, I, you, did you know that you are like the people love you on the video series? Did you know this? I, I, I didn't really know that. No, I, what, 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 what is it? What, why do they? What is they, it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's always plenty of other people, I suppose, but uh, I don't know. What is it? Uh, I don't know what it is. I think that, um, ooh, we're getting a lot of, uh, choppy audio commentary from the people. Ooh, ooh. I don't know if it's you, if it's me. Everything on this end looks good, though, so. Choppy audio, huh? Copy chaudio. You know, choppy chaudio? I think that, um, I think that people just, you know, you got a good, uh, positive mental attitude. The mustache doesn't hurt. I think your, um... Your good vibes exude out of Eddie every orifice. Oh, every Sisyphus? That's a terrible thing. <laughs> uh, you know, pro gear, pro attitude. Just, just got to bring the pro gear, pro attitude. Um, maybe turn your mic down just ever so slightly there. Okay. Perfect. My, my pro gear might not be so pro after all, turns out. It's too pro, I think, is probably the issue. So, uh, you know, I figured what better way for people to get to know you than to have you on the podcast, because people are always asking about you. They want to know more. They want more Ron. Nobody can get enough Ron, you know? So we just figured let's let's get some more Ron going here, you know? Yeah, let's do it. Let's hang out. I'm, I'm all for it. I'm here. I'm here all day anyway. So, you know, you caught me at the office. <laughs> I basically, this is entrapment. Uh, you have to be on here. There's got to be a way to open the door and get out. I've been stuck down here for, uh, what are we, day 48 now? So, uh, um, I'm curious, where where did you grow up, Ron? Well, uh, a few different places. I mean, you know, like a lot of people, we, we, moved, we moved, had one major move, but it was kind of like a few different sort of growing up experiences, and they're pretty different. Um, initially from California in Pasadena, um, up in Eaton Canyon, right at the base of Mount Wilson and the Washington or the, uh, the Angeles National Forest, but sort of grew up looking at that stuff and never had any idea of all the cool roads and stuff that were going on up there. But, uh, um, you know, now when I go back and, and get on a bike back there, it's like, oh my God, if I knew then what I knew, what I know now, <laughs> Uh, it's just such an amazing sort of jump off point for so much, so many cycling routes out there. Um, 
But then um, we moved out to the East Coast um, right as I was going into fourth grade, which is kind of like a really awkward time to move because you're at such a weird sort of formative stage to be kind of like uprooted from, you know, I was just getting into BMX bikes, and skateboards and California culture in like the mid 80s and like everything was awesome and exciting and radical. And then it's just like, we're going to go to the conservative Northern Virginia suburbs outside of Washington, DC, which was like kind of weird. It was like a major culture shock uh, to go out to Washington, DC in like the mid eighties. So, but then yeah, spent time, you know, in high school and early college years out in the DC area, which, you know, musically, culturally, it's a pretty interesting, awesome, dynamic place, but you know, mid eighties being a little kid, it's like totally weird. It's like, ah, where's my skate culture, beach stuff, cool rock and roll shit and yeah so basically dc area california college in montana formative early adult years in the 20s playing in bands in the seattle area and i live in portland now so that's like the nutshell version where where did you get into music was that in fourth grade in in los angeles pasadena's in los angeles southern california yeah, I was. I, I started young. I worked in a record store when I was in fourth grade. I had a DJ <laughs> really radio station. Yeah, I was super into the early punk stuff. No, I'm just kidding. No, oh, Jesus um, Christ! In high school, you know, like everybody else, sort of like dabbling around with like rebellious phases, getting into like punk rock, and usually most of it channeled through like skateboarding culture. Yeah, kind of how it happened, as I'm sure it did for you as well. Was was that in DC then, or was it? Where were you at that point? Suburbs. It was. It was. It was sort of adjacent to DC. So like we were absorbing a lot of the culture from Washington DC. So like we were heavily influenced by like the Minor Threat stuff. Yeah. And you know, the rad Discord shows, but we would have to drive in because we lived out in like the kind of like the burbs. And then is that where you started playing music and stuff also? Oh yeah, yeah. Started messing around in the in the basement, like playing drums and guitar and four tracking and you know, getting getting into that kind of stuff. So that that led down its own kind of rabbit hole. Did uh, either of your parents play music? No, they hated it. It was a reaction to my parents. They hated music. Not they didn't actively hate music, but they just they weren't musical. I mean, they, you know, the the closest they came was like the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and maybe some like Mariah Carey stuff. And I think my mom might've been into like late period Billy Joel, like in the nineties or something, but yeah, it definitely wasn't like a musically dynamic household. Like music was like the escape. It was like my world as opposed to like the world that, you know, you live in at home. It was like this weird sort of escapist sort of world of like cool, dangerous, fucked up shit instead of, you know, cool parent stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, sorry. There, apparently, we're having a lot of audio issues when it's on my side. So I don't. That's why I call this live stream fail because. Ah, oh, nice. I, I like the I like the built-in sort of potential for failure. Because every time I don't know, guys, I, everything looks according to plan over here. So I apologize, but Maybe. you know, I apologized in advance, even before the whole thing started. If it sounds good to me and it sounds good to Dustin, sounds like the problem is on everybody else's end. 
I like that. There you go. Uh, so, sorry, I was getting distracted by all that stuff. So, you know, fuck it. Maybe we get to do this again, too. So music and such was through in, in the on the East Coast teenager. Did you start playing in bands at that time or are you just making music? Uh, it, it was a little bit of both. We played in like scrap, scrappy little bands with my friends. Like we didn't really like go on tour or do like, you know, pro 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 style band playing uh, at that point. This would have been like, you know, 91 through like 94. It was like pretty much like playing in the basement, jamming basement indie rock jams, smoking pot, four tracking, like a lot of that kind of stuff. I was really into like slint and pavement and sonic youth and a lot of a lot of that kind of slacker kind of garbagey lo-fi indie rock stuff from that era so it was very very conducive to holding up in the basement with a four track and like a bunch of pedals and making like hissy soundscapey kind of non-rock stuff on your four track yeah that sounds cool and yeah so at what point did you i mean i guess the other because I know that music and cycling, they kind of crossroads for you at a certain point. But I'm wondering if they're like, what builds up to that point? Um, just one. Actually, it did intersect with cycling in kind of a strange roundabout way, because like, um, like educationally, I went to art school, which is sort of like, you know, that's not outside the realm of possibility with a lot of people who are into like bands and yeah. four track creative recording and stuff and uh you know eventually that led to touring in bands for quite a while and uh, fast forward to like seattle in like the mid oos in like 2010 and i was uh playing and touring with the fruit bats and like we had been going at it for quite a while and um i was just kind of getting burned out on it and every tour i would come back from um I was looking for something to kind of get myself back in shape and was really kind of uh, taken with like fixed gear bicycles, which were really popular at the time. And so where were you living? Uh, Seattle. Go on. And uh, and, you know, got one of those, got another one of those, got a couple of geared bikes and eventually got kind of like obsessed with like you know, rehabilitating old bikes and procuring new bikes and configuring different sort of forms of different bikes. And it became kind of like an anti-tour escape thing. Like you come back from tour and it's like, it's so different and it's something that you're in control of instead of being, you know, at the sort of like mercy of other schedules that are outside of your choice. So it, it became sort of an antithesis to the touring life, which I had done for like, I don't know, maybe eight years or so. so. Oh, yeah, that's a long time. I'm, I feel like, how did you end up getting into like, because for a musician at that point where touring bands is like kind of a, an accomplishment, like, you know, like you don't just start doing that. Is it just through people that you met and then eventually like i mean it seems like that was something that you wanted to do also yeah yeah it's it, it it was good for for a while um it's just one of those things that's just like it's great for a period of time it's totally. amazing like right. when you're in your sort of like 20s and yeah. and early 30s when like you can stay up super late you're good to go just sort of rolling with the punches and just kind of tucking and rolling for a couple of years and and you know, being able to sort of scrap it and make it, make it happen and, and have fun with it. But like, 
you know, you start to get to a certain age and it's just like, okay, man, I'm kind of getting a little tired of like the super late nights, the unpredictability of schedules and, and that kind of thing. So I just figured it was, it was kind of time for a little bit more stability. So sort of like parlayed that into, um, other stuff. <laughs> yeah. And cycling was one of those things. Cycling was definitely like one of those things because it's like, it's so physical. It's so control. It, it, at least at the time for me, it was very, very controlled. It was something that I had like all the control over. And uh, yeah, I think kind of like psychologically, like touring kind of put me in like a little bit of a weird space because you're always at the mercy of other people's schedules. Um. When, you're, when you're sort of like not running the show, I was like kind of like the side man playing the guitar and keyboards and eventually bass like in, in Fruit Bat. So, but, but ultimately it's like when tours came up, you, you're like, Hey, I'm going on tour now. So cycling was a nice way to be like, I'm going to go on a ride now and I'm going to start now and I'm going to go this far and then I'm going to finish when I finish. And, and it, it was something that was, it was that I could focus my energies into that was like kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. And then I think just, we just have to touch on this. You did play in the shins for, for a, a hot minute. Is that correct? Yeah, we did sort of like two tours during that era, and I played on the um, Port of Morrow record. It was like sort of in cool. between eras for that uh, for that band. It was like after the initial sort of um, the the kind of like the original lineup, and then like the sort of kind of ever changing lineup that it kind of has been ever since. It's mainly James Mercer's project, so he's kind of like cool. the songwriter, the visionary. He created the whole thing, but yeah, I was in it in sort of 2009, 2010 era. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, just a little side note. So with the cycling stuff, you're in Seattle. It's like you know you're kind of getting burnt out on touring and stuff. Was was it tricky? Like sometimes I wonder how difficult it is for people that are just getting into cycling like you don't really know what all the things are or who, who to you know who to ride with or where to go was there did you feel like any kind of challenge through that getting like kind of slowly entering into this world yeah absolutely i mean cycling is one of those really deep intimidating worlds like record collecting or comic book stores or exotic fish collecting where it's just like there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of hoarded knowledge and, and you find that I think in like a lot of like, at least you did at the time, like by, by culture, I felt really intimidated by it. It's like, Oh, you don't know about the new sort of Shimano Ultegra 10 speed group, which it was at the time, like, or you go into a bike shop and you, I was like always mortified to look like such the noob that I was like, I didn't know the stuff that I was talking about. And you can easily be kind of talked circles around. And so it kind of led me to just ride by myself all the time. Like I was just, for like two or three years, like I never, I didn't have any other bike friends. It was just like me riding by myself, which is like a very strange entry point. But I think it's pretty common for a lot of people, you know, to be like really intimidated by shop culture, group ride culture, and especially racing culture, because I mean, there's the fitness buy-in and it's very clickish and it's very intimidating. So yeah, coming, coming in like the weird way. Yeah. Well, I, like you said, I bet it's not that uncommon for people to do that. You just ride by yourself and then, so eventually, did you start meeting people or finding, like, uh, what ended up happening? Uh, moved to Portland. Portland is oh. amazing. It's, it's, it's so much more, uh, 
friendly and inviting and inclusive feeling than a place like Seattle or I mean you're you're from the Bay Area too you spent time there I imagine like the the cycling scene would be pretty intimidating in a, in a big city like that but yeah I came down to Portland and it was just like other people you would see on a bike they would actually say like hello and then you know my buddy Brandon Day who that's the other person that I started OMTM with um, back in gosh 2014 or 2015 um, he was kind of just getting into cycling too. And so we kind of came into it together through like road, road cycling and kind of getting out into the sort of hinterlands of like Larch Mountain and, and stuff. So you know, I had another person to do it with. And then he and I sort of like began meeting other people through, um, then it was 21st Avenue bikes over in Northwest. And uh, they put together a team and we started racing on the team and met a whole bunch of other people that way. And kind of that was like the entry point <clears throat> into like cycling culture proper. Right. Yeah. Well, racing, that makes sense, which is kind of that I, I a little get a little bummed when I hear that because I'm I'm very much of the philosophy of rides over races. I don't think that racing is the end all be all to everything or anything. So. But of yeah. course, there's a community built around it. So inevitably, you're going to get that out of it. Yeah. Did, did you ever race yourself? I don't think I've ever asked you that. No, I just have never. I, I've done a couple alley cats as a bike messenger. I did yeah. like one night at PRI to just try it. Like it just I get too wound up about it and it makes it not fun at all. I know. I went through that same thing, too. And I think a, a lot of people do who gravitate towards adventure riding is that like so much of your self-worth and your cycling identity is pinned on how you do in races yuck there's so much of your time and your energy and your focus uh is spent optimizing for these very strange formats that don't exist in natural riding like going hard and redlining for 45 minutes in muddy circles like who does normally (laughs) right or or, or tucking in and being really, really strategic and kind of biding your time so that you can explode in like the last 30 seconds is like, that's just, it feels very unnatural to optimize your fitness and your cycling structure around those types of, those types of forms. It just feels really, felt really foreign to me. And I think it does to a lot of other people, which is probably why gravel adventure riding and more social types of riding forms are so popular these days yeah thank god that it's finally like kind of coming around it is about like going for a ride it's not about like competition can be good but when it's all about like it's just like cold and it's like not very welcoming and like just you know if you're always against the other person of course you can build camaraderie but it's that's like a a subsidiary of it it's you know automatically it's you against everybody else and it's just that sounds gross like that's not like that doesn't happen in skating that doesn't happen in creative endeavors so it's yeah yeah it's it's kind of it was kind of strange culturally um i always have designs like every year i mean i'm sure a lot of people do too every year i'm coming around it's like january february march and it's like you know maybe i'm gonna try racing again maybe i'm gonna try <laughs> you know doing a couple of road races out at pir or doing um you know some of the early season dirty circle stuff when everybody has like you know kind of winter legs and and give it a shot of course it never happens because it takes so much discipline to get in any any semblance of form that you would even be competitive or feel good to compete that it it 
it, it kind of never happens. But and Ryan Francesconi once wisely said, the only way racing is fun is if you're doing well at it. So <laughs> totally. Very good, very good perspective. You know, fun if you're if you're if you're decent and you're competitive. And if you're not, it can be sort of defeating and depressing and make you feel like you're just like a terrible cyclist because you're coming in near the back of the pack. And I always had this tendency to kind of give up when I felt really like defeated and I would just stop racing and pull off the course. And like, that's no way to race. So yeah, I stopped doing it. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly why this is so such a perfect culmination of that's why the OMTM stuff is like, so was so appealing to me. Obviously that's why it was part of the reason that was appealing to you too. It's like this way to get together and do these crazy rides and experiences that are not competitive at all. If people want to pin it and go heavy for sure, go for it. And there's a time and a place, but it's not, the whole thing isn't based on this, like, who's the fastest like bleh. <laughs> it's it's not it's not really even about who's the anything it's like right you don't even have to show up at the time that the, the ride starts <laughs> you can show up later you can do it on there there's no hard and fast thing to it like anybody and everybody is welcome all skill levels it's just like the only buy-in is like being able to ride, ride the whole course if, you know, and that's why uh, oftentimes we'll offer like longer epic courses for people who need to kind of hammer it the whole time and want to do like a big hundred mile day. But we also offer, try to offer like shorter versions, multiple versions for each type of organized ride. I mean, during the pandemic, obviously we're not doing rides necessarily, but, but I think that's kind of like part of the appeal and why a lot of people are getting into that is just like, you can do it on your own terms. You don't have to like have reach any kind of threshold to like qualify to be able to do this type of thing. It's like, you can, you can chill ride it. You can ride it by yourself. You can ride it by, you know, moonlight. <laughs> you can do it whenever it's like, you know, kind of for everybody. That's the, that's the fun part about it. It's built in. And then, so you and Brandon day start, did you, you started around 2014. Like, what was that? Were you guys trying to start a thing or did it just come out of, come out organically? Yeah, it came, it came up super organically. Cause we were just like tired of not having people to ride with because all of our racing teammates were always being like, no man, I got to stay in like zone four for two, the next two weeks leading up to the big, big, <laughs> open classic challenge, you know, and, and we would be bummed out because nobody, everybody was optimizing for cross and everybody was, because we were mainly a cross team. Um, and so we decided that we wanted to go and put together this website so that we could sort of document some of the fun places that we had been out riding, like out, you know, Bacona way, Dixie mountain way, uh, pumpkin. I mean, this was like the early days of Portland gravel, like smoke ranch and pumpkin Ridge. And some of these places that we were sort of finding and exploring, um, other people were too at the same time, but we wanted to document them so that other people could have like a resource because at the time there wasn't much of a resource for exploring those types of roads. <clears throat> like you had to kind of go out and get lost and figure it out for yourself, which is kind of fun, but you know, you do that enough times and you're like, man, I wish I could just go out and ride some vetted gravel that somebody had like nicely presented and written up with great pictures and expectations and GPS tracks. <laughs> 
And so that totally didn't exist. So we we're like, let's make a website project. Like we had never made a website before. So we were like, this will be fun and interesting. And so we kind of started to put, put that together and uh, people started writing their routes and, and we were just kind of stoked about that. Yeah, it's perfect. It's such a, a, a simple, awesome, obvious thing. It's like a public service that you guys do. It's so amazing. And I, I love that. I know what you're saying, too. You write enough of these, like, because then you got to memorize all of them and all these routes. And you're kind of like, oh, what well, did it connect here? I didn't do it until like a year ago. And now that logging road is weird. Like, it's great oh, to just the library. Like handwritten crib sheets that were like, take a left at the big tree. And then when you see the haunted spooky chain across the road, go back to where you came from and start <laughs> or like just weird crib sheets like you would, you know, tape to your top tube. And I don't know, that that doesn't really work very well. So, but then we found like ride with GPS and like that is such a revolutionary way to route plan. And then, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm still talking like sort of early days of when we were, you know, mainly just doing it with our cross buddies. But uh, I came across Ryan Francesconi in like, gosh, was it 2016 or 2017? Um, who had been doing basically the same thing, but going way deeper. And he had a really, really deep base of knowledge um, of exploring kind of like hinterlands uh, and then had been loosely read, leading group rides, which was one thing that we were not doing. We were mainly just focused on like putting together a website. Uh, so we started collaborating around, gosh, I, I think it was 2016 or 2017. Yeah, no, maybe it was 2015. Oh my gosh. <laughs> At any rate, um, when, when we started collaborating uh, on routes and throwing actual events and group rides, sort of, it, it took the whole thing to the next level because it started creating more of a cohesive community of the people who started coming out to the ride. So it, it became a very different thing when, uh, when we started collaborating with Ryan because he brought his wealth of experience um, he had amazing deep route knowledge, like multi-day routes, bike tour stuff, and had gone out like kind of a lot further than we were going out um, and exploring. Um, so so it, it kind of became something different around that point. But uh, yeah. What was the first OMTM group ride? Um, I think it may have been Mosier Mayhem. We had kind of like huh. a hokey metal theme and we were like Mosier Mayhem it's gonna be so awesome and it's, it's pretty pretty tame by the standards of, of stuff that people are riding today but started out in Mosier um there was like a, a big route and then a, like a medium route I think we hit a whole bunch of I think it was flasks of mezcal all along the route kind of I guess irresponsible <laughs> about it. Like, hey go on this big bike ride and you may find one of five flasks of mezcal out in the boonies and <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Huh. Yeah, we met some cool people on, on some of those rides, like out in the woods, like hunting for this stuff, people who we still ride with today. So Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's twofold. Like the routes are so amazing. It's so awesome that there's just this constant library. So like like people ask me all the time, oh, I want to I want to go to an OMTM event or I want to ride an OMTM route when I visit Portland. And I'm like, you can do it anytime you want. Like you don't have to wait for an event. You can just do them at any point. The, the library is indefinitely there. And, but you know, the next level of that is when it, it, you do get to mix with all these people, it kind of amplifies and all these new connections are made and the experience is so much cooler because of all the people. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things we're really missing right now is it's like, you're just kind of, the season was just getting started and I could tell people were really getting excited for, for this season. And we were kind of like, you know, mulling over ideas of what type of routes we were going to do for, <laughs> for, for this year. And I mean, you were, you were on the Swale Canyon ride that we did back in early March before the lockdown stuff started happening and, and it, it was great. It was amazing. People were so stoked for the season. Um, and then all of this stuff happened and it was just like, Whoa, it's like the rugs pulled out from under you. You kind of had this, this, this sadness. It's like, where did, where did our sort of bike culture group thing go? And you miss all the connections with all the people and the, you know, you can only ride solo so much without just being like, Oh man. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and that well, you know, I think there's like a funny thing too that happens with OMTM is like, you know, you guys are, you don't want it to really get to be too big, or there's an issue that happens when it gets to be a little bit too big. Right. I mean, by design, it's supposed to be scrappy and under the radar, and I mean, it's it's a it's a DIY thing from the get go, and <clears throat> when it gets when it gets too big. Uh, too many eyes get to be on the routes and you can't have the same kind of level of creativity of route design. Yeah. Um, because some of our favorite writing is like incorporating single track into the mix, some kind of tricky, dodgy, slightly dangerous, like maybe like Creek crossings and weird sketchy connectors and steep sort of mountain bikey sections into larger gravel rides. And, uh, you know, some of them aren't appropriate for big groups of like a hundred plus. And, you know, not only could people get hurt or could people get lost, but they also, uh, it's not good for the terrain. It's not good to bring that many people on trails. And um, also, you know, we live in logging timberland. There's tons of private property around here. And so some of the stuff you tend to be riding through uh, areas that are owned by sort of like timber companies. And sometimes you make the radar of those timber companies and they tell you, you can't do it. And so you have to, you know, cancel or alter rides. So it's, you know, you get above a certain threshold and um, it sort of compromises the, the creativity. So like in the past year, we've had a lot of issues with that. And so we've like pulled back on certain rides and we've pulled back on publicizing uh, certain things so that we could kind of keep the routes and the events in the spirit, the creative spirit as they were sort of initially envisioned because we didn't want to like just turn them into like gravel grinders all on like public roads because those are just gravel grinders, you know? Yeah, and those get boring real fast too. Right, I mean, there's there's definitely, there's good ones. They're interesting and fun, but I think some of the <clears throat> creative spirit that, that really drives us to make routes um, is finding these lost hidden connectors in these places that most people don't go. And a lot of that isn't appropriate for, for really big groups. So it's kind of given us a little kind of like time to kind of reconsider um, some riding in some of these areas. I mean, there's some areas where we've tried to have a ride like three or four times. Um, and for one reason or another, things keep coming up, whether it be rain, weather, deep snow stuff, um, you know, companies like logging companies getting in touch and being like, no way, there's active logging operations going on through here. You will be cited or whatever. Um, we've had sort of like state agencies get in touch and be like, you have oh. to have a permit for this type of thing. And uh, so, yeah, you do run into problems when you kind of get above a certain a certain uh, profile. Yeah, it, and 
it's uh, it's kind of like the same thing happens with bands too you know like you kind of want to keep them small you know like the the smaller show has like more energy than the amphitheater you know not not always but i think you get the metaphor right it just becomes something different it's just it's a exactly. it's a different avenue a different a slightly different audience too because you have enough people coming out that you don't really know um and you yeah. know first and foremost we we make the routes and these rides and the times of year that, that they're, you know, put on uh, to scratch itches, the, the, the things that we would want to ride, you know, the places and the types of stuff that we want to do. And that's definitely kind of like not really for everybody, but people, you know, are attracted to it because it seems kind of like cool and, you know, exotic, not exotic, but like there's like a romanticism to being like, oh man, we're going to go out and totally get lost in these wild areas. And it's like, you could actually get lost in these wild areas and it's definitely sort of not for everybody because not everybody shows up with the routes on their Dude. GPS devices or even has GPS devices. And so <clears throat> sometimes you get a lot of people um, you are just like, oh man, I don't know. This might not be for public consumption, some of these really deep routes, you know? Yeah, and that is a thing that... Oh, I see. That is a thing the... Um, Oh, I totally distracted the show myself. I'm sorry. I'm so nervous about the audio being fucked up that like that's the only thing I can think about now. How oh, is it? Can you hear this when I do this? Anybody? All right. Um, yeah, the hook with like, I think people. It's funny because the OMTM rides are a like ride at your own risk kind of ride, but when they're big events, people show up and they kind of almost just expect it to be like they're taken care of, and you're like, yo. This is like a, you know, survive it kind of an event. Right, right. And some of them are, yeah, they're, they're really, really not appropriate for coming in with that expectation. Um, <clears throat> you know, you try to put as much of that information out there, but, but ultimately it's, you know, you can't police everybody. So it's, it, it, it becomes a little, a little bit tricky because when you have as many people showing up as would show up to like, a, you know, a local race or a, a, a gravel race or event or something like that that you that you pay for um there is the expectation i think that you're going to have like some kind of support or you're going to be like sweeping the course or there's going to be some kind of like somebody to bail you out if you pitch down a ravine and taco your wheel or something like that and these types of things were never meant to have that because they were always intended for like pretty small groups they just got really popular it's kind of kind of how it went you know well, and that's the wave of cycling right now. The, the the movement and the trend is this gravel adventure riding. So, of course, anything that's having an event like that is going to, there's just, it's just the power of the moment, you know? Right. Um, oh, this is an interesting question from Josh McCulloch. He asks if you have any interesting, like, property owner stories or like, you know, or maybe even Weyerhaeuser, which is the for, one of the forest proper, I don't even know what the fuck they're called. They're like a timber company. You have any f not, incidences? Not any like direct conflict issues, but <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, we, we had we had one one event. It's an amazing route. Our buddy uh, Ben Swanson wrote it yesterday. And it's funny, you should you should ask that because they, um, one of the best roads we had kind of like ever found in the, it's, it's east of Portland by about maybe like, I don't know, 
20, 25 miles or so, um, this route called the Dark Larch, which explores sort of like Larch Mountain and some of the, the areas uh, down along the Sandy River. One of the most beautiful roads we had found in like a lot of our explorations, we, we kind of named it the, uh, the Dark Larch Bypass. And um, it was this beautiful forested, lush, like winding serpentine double track forest road, just really like, you know, kind of fern gully vibes. And when we were putting together the uh, the finalized route to ride it, basically like last year at this time, I guess it was like last February, uh, we discovered that there was a, a, a new active logging operation going on and they had totally destroyed the road, like full on clear cut, like decimated, like it just, it, it was so dark and so terrible and they had destroyed the road. The area was just like, it was kind of a nightmare. Um, <clears throat> so we routed around that and ran into just, just issue after issue with the company that was running the logging stuff. And we we're like, well, let's see if we can run it around the logging, not go through the logging. Um, and everybody that rode through there, um, you know, before the event happened, got stopped and got yelled at and got harassed by like the security people. Cause I mean, it is, you know, technically private timber land, but they are also roads that are on the map and they connect one public place to another accessible public place. And usually you don't have much of a problem, but we actually got um, the, the logging company people got in touch with us and they were like, you cannot run this event. This is absolutely not allowed. You're going to be cited for trespassing. And so yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of freaked us out a little bit because, you know, obviously we, we, don't want anyone to be getting in trouble. We don't want to be liable for trespassing. Um, but so we had to kind of take that route offline and people, people continued to ride it. And sure enough, like every time they would ride the route, they would get nabbed by like the security people who were like posted up in RVs at both entrances to these stretches of road. And we had told everybody via like our, our sort of Google group and mailing list, we were like, don't ride this. You're going to get nabbed and it's just going to cause more tension between you know, the people who are managing the land and cyclists. And we don't want to give cycling a bad name. So we were telling people to stay off, but they sort of still do it. But we had kind of created a treasure hunt component to the ride as we sometimes do. And we went out and planted these little treasure packs that had like, you know, some little gummy snacks, some sour worms, a couple cool like patches and stickers from like local organizations and stuff like that. And, um, after we had called the ride off first due to snow and then the second time we had to call the ride off it was due to um this this logging cease and desist business um so we had a, a rider go out and kind of sweep everything and pick up the packages except they couldn't find the last one uh until yesterday <laughs> and ben went out and found the last package yesterday and uh some of the patches were kind of frayed and the stickers were kind of like gnarled and like waterlogged. And I think it looked like some squirrels had been into the, uh, to the gummy worm. So we need to, do, to definitely make sure if we cancel the ride that we've already posted little treasure hunt things, we have to make sure that those all get picked up because I thought they all got picked up, but apparently there was one left. So I don't know if it's really a landowner story, but it's kind of just <laughs> everything. Cause like, the stuff is changing out there all the time because of so much active logging going on and just you're in the Pacific Northwest. So odds are you're going to be either going through or adjacent to like timberland. It's sometimes not very optimum riding because it's kind of, <clears throat> there's a lot of destruction that happens in those areas, but 
it, uh, it, it does happen. So. Yeah, th- uh, this is an interesting question from Ben Swanson. Actually, I think this is a different Ben. Crazy, because you just mentioned the one we know. Um, he lives in rural Minnesota and is basically wondering, like, how would he start to build a community like OMTM where he's based out of? Um, you just kind of start doing it. Yeah. I mean, if you if 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 you have routes that you enjoy riding by yourself or with your buddies, <clears throat> I mean, share them. You can just share them or find some way to to act as a hub or resource and kind of like post them somewhere, like building a website or setting up an ambassador page via Ride with GPS, which is like hands down. I found we found one of the best platforms ever for building and sharing routes. Oh, uh, as deep or as sort of like user friendly as you want with it, but it's it's an incredible resource. But just building building routes and vetting routes and testing them out and sharing them with people. And then, you know, if you want them to be, have a group ride component, you can, you know, host events and post events. Yeah. And also when you first start an event or any project of any form, no one gives a shit in the beginning. It's don't take it personal. They just don't know if it's real. They don't know if it's consistent. They don't know anything about it. So you just have to do a few and just have, don't have any expectations and inevitably it's going to grow. And then there you go. There's your, your growth. And then you just keep doing it if you enjoy it. Right. If it's cool, if it sucks, nobody comes, then it might just suck. But uh, yeah, but in the beginning, nobody knows about things are very slow in the beginning and things suck in the beginning, but that doesn't mean they won't get better. So just keep doing anything that you're passionate about, whether it's a route, a band, a fucking crappy podcast where the audio doesn't work. You just got to keep stabbing away at it. Yeah. And just figuring it out. I mean, we got, we used to do tons of like different types of night rides that we would like name different things or whatever. And sometimes there would be just like two people that would come and sometimes there would be 10 and it's like just the consistency of doing it over and over again. And then upping the quality as you do it seems like kind of kind of a, a pretty good way to go. Yeah, which I think is kind of inevitable for the creator because you know you can't just just stagnate. It's boring, you know. Um, I'm curious. So you ride a lot of that Zen bike. I feel like the the two. What are the two main bikes, or what are the main bikes that you ride right now? Um, me personally, I have a, I have a Zen AR45, which is <clears throat> true temper steel. Um, it's kind of an early, an early adventure bike. What is, I mean, now pretty standard, like a, a high volume tire adventure bike meant to either do 700, uh, or 650 wheel set, um, clearance for like 2.1 up to like 2.25, fender mounts, that kind of thing. Like that's all like standard stuff, but this was back in like 2014. There was uh, a a, a contract builder here in Portland um, whose house brand, uh, his name was David Warrenitz and his house brand was was Zen and he did like a cross bike, a road bike, a couple other varieties. But this AR45 was like the one that was kind of like ahead of its time because it was like, it combined all these things that didn't exist uh, in one place. And now it's like, that everybody has, that's like the standard now. So it's, it's kind of like an older sort of prototype of like what is now the standard adventure bike. And it's uh, a, yeah, sorry. It's got a weird one inch top tube. So it's kind of like, it looks mm-hmm. a little bit, but it's actually, it's got all the flex where 
the flex is needed and all the stiffness where the stiffness is needed down on the uh, down tube and the chain stays. And that's a big boy bike too. That's like a 69. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a 69 er. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, this is actually a really cool question from Richard S. He says, what, if you had to recommend one route for an, or what routes, whatever, one or a few, would you recommend for an out-of-towner? That's a really good question. We're coming to like the, the Portland region? Yeah, like someone's visiting Portland, they want to do an OMTM route, they know the website, like which one would you, would you take a stab at? And also, before you answer that, the one thing to note for anybody that is looking to do this, there is a thorough list uh, or a thorough like verbi uh, description for each route too. So these aren't just like, here's a route, do it. There's like a lot of explanation of what each one is. Yeah, and what you're going to get into. I, I, I suppose before you su would suggest any one route to any one rider sight unseen, you would have to ask what their experience level was, what distance they were trying to get into, what kind of day they were looking for. Yeah, we have, but we I have think a, this is in-city rides to like very deep rides that you could probably break up into multi-days if you wanted to. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume that this is someone that's similar to us that does adventure riding and has a gauge on what their capacity is. So, right. I mean, I guess from that, the answer, just see what's available. I, I would say like there's there's two, two things that would probably be the first go-tos. Um, the first one being like actually on the Washington side, uh, we have one sort of series of, of rides or routes called the Falls Creek Hinterland, which is really, really beautiful. It explores the Wind River region of the southern uh, tier of the Gifford Pinchot National Forest out of Carson, Washington. And it's just like, there's short manageable sort of bite-sized loops. There's like medium adventure-sized loops and there's like big epic sort of 90 mile, you know, 9,000 foot iterations that all basically start and finish at the same place. So <clears throat> that that would be a good one to look into. There's some cool caves you can check out. The views are absolutely epic. It's beautiful. And you, I guess you would, uh, I would first have to ask like what time of year you're going to do it because seasonality around here in the Northwest is like a major sort of majorly affects like where you're going to ride when. Um, another summertime one that would be nice would be like Japanese hollow out of the Dalles is really, really nice too. That's, that's a very sort of Cadillac gravel, very smooth, very, you can practically do it on a road bike. It's better on like 42s to 45s or 47s, but those, those ones are pretty nice. Um, there's some stuff out, out in the coast range, like the timber log jam stuff is really nice. The hell of the North Plains, but each one is such a different experience. It, it just really kind of depends on what you're looking for. But I would say like Falls Creek hinterland, some version of that or some version of like the Japanese hollow one are, they're, they're pretty good sort of not low commitment, but it's like, if, if you had to do one, those are pretty exemplary of this area, I would say in very different ways. I'm pretty, I'm just personally curious. So say like normal life, like if it was not lockdown April or May time, like how often are you riding a week? And then like on the weekends, are you always doing like some kind of big ride and will you do them solo or will you do them with a group? There's like 10 questions for you. <laughs> if we're talking like normal time, like a year ago right yes. now, um, I mean, 
we were supposed to be out in Mitchell staying at the Spoken Hostel last weekend, exploring Rajneeshpuram, the John Day area, the Twickenham. Like we were supposed to be doing a big weekend. So <clears throat> if it were normal times like a year ago, um, yeah, usually every weekend, one of the weekend days, there's something some kind of like exploratory mission or ride going on, um, you know, preparing for a route or putting together a route or figuring out some section of a route so that, you know, something can be ready for, for an event. Um, weekly stuff. <clears throat> I do more road riding than anything else. Uh, if I'm just going out the front door, it's usually just going to be, um, some kind of road ride in the West Hills or lately during the pandemic stuff, a little off topic, I've been riding out to the Rocky Point system out at the end of Skyline um, and exploring the trails. And there's a lot of gravel out there, too. So that's out the front door. Um, but yeah, it's usually like three days a week, like two kind of during the sneaking out during the during the, the weekdays. And then there's usually some kind of longer either sort of small group thing or exploratory mission in the service of putting together like a larger route or event on the weekends being being normal times right yeah and that's one thing i always have really appreciated about you is you are such a like a gatherer of people like generally on the weekends like you've got some momentum going of like let's go to this place or what about over here and like it's always different it's a little it's always kind of a mission like it's so awesome that you do that because you really like stoke the fire. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it, it, that's just kind of like how I've always, that's kind of what Brandon and I used to always do with our cross team. We would just be texting our buddies and being like, Hey, we're going to go out and check this stuff out. You want to come with us just to get like a good group of folks. Cause you know, it's more fun, you know, connecting with people and writing with people and kind of sharing these places with people. But you know, the further you go and the deeper you go with stuff, it, it also becomes safer too, to yeah. travel. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, that's kind of kind of a big issue. I, I feel like that this pandemic has kind of shined a light on it. It's like, man, you really cannot get out solo to the places that you get out to with groups. Um, like our, our buddies, Ryan Francesconi and uh, Dustin Henderson did kind of a big one yesterday to this really beautiful looking area. I have not been to Corner uh, oh, yeah. Rock and um, I was following along via Instagram and was remarking it like, you know, they did a very, very meticulously distance apparently ride where they just, they rode within sight of each other. So that was anywhere from like yelling distance to like a quarter of a mile or whatever. But um, yeah, it, they got way deeper than you would have been able to safely or responsibly want to go solo unless you, you know, were prepared to like go solo bikepacking out there because it was like, hundred miles and almost like 10,000 feet. So pretty big day. Jesus. Yeah, the photos were insane too. Yeah. It looked like there was a little bit of snow and some, some amazing like rock trails and stuff, but, but yeah, going that deep solo can be really spooky. Cause I, I learned that early, uh, having, I broke a frame out at the end of, um, I took a wrong turn off a of smoke ranch in like 2014 on this converted road bike that was totally maxed out on like 32s, knobby 32s. Huh. And uh, my, my frame broke out there. And uh, I had to kind of walk about like three or four miles before I kind of flagged down like a kind of like a redneck in like a hunter truck. It turned out to be super cool. And it gave me a ride back to the St. John's Bridge. But that'll kind of kind of teach you not to get in over your head without any kind of GPS or route or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 
Well, and that actually was kind of like, will you do like uh, like missions to Mosier and stuff solo? I've never known that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I in normal like this is all sort of like hypothetically under normal times. Yeah, normal times. I haven't, <coughs> I haven't driven out anywhere um, since all of this started. I've been doing everything from the front door, but but yeah, like typically, if it's just like oh, I just want to go out for a good ride, solo ride by myself known quantities um I'll, I'll often go out to like dals or Mosier and just kind of ride an existing route or maybe do it backwards or maybe do it oh, like yeah. add some new twists but i'm i'm a big fan of rewriting things because i feel like every time you rewrite something you notice something different or if you do it in like the opposite direction or if you add in some like new variables like go out to some eagle caves that you read about or go out and try to throw in some single track or something but yeah i'll do a lot of that stuff by by myself i usually won't go too deep but but i'll but I'll, I'll go i'll go out places see some stuff and then are you like if you're gonna do you know this is all hypothetical like Oh, do I want to do like a little ride out in Mosier? Like, are you often looking at maps and kind of checking out like, oh, is there a little thing or is there like is is route? Play? There's always some some angle of exploration. Yeah, without a doubt. I don't I don't. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Ryan or I will ever just go out for a ride to have a ride. If you're going to go somewhere to do it. <clears throat> oh, no. Did we lose him? Shit. Well, that would be totally the cherry on top. And that's where the wheels fell off. Why, why, why? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know. Maybe he hung up on us. Live stream fail. Coming at you large and in charge. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Look at that. Big old... <laughs> where did he go? Classy. Very classy. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Fuck it. Maybe that's it. We did it about an hour, so... Thanks for tuning in to my horrible sloppy mess of an experience. I appreciate the hell out of you guys, and we will do a part two. How does that sound? And maybe, just maybe, I'll have the technical aspects figured out. Until next time, my dear friends, much love and respect. Avita Zane, adieu. Goodbye.